Good morning from Des Moines. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 4th. In today's news, Joe Manchin's proposal to censure President Trump meets resistance on both sides. States scramble to carry out Trump's coronavirus order. And Boris Johnson is squabbling with Brussels over what it means to be friends with benefits. But first, the big idea. Iowa Democrats spent a year evaluating the record large field of presidential candidates, all in search of someone they believed could defeat President Trump in November. But on the night they were asked to deliver a definitive result, the entire precinct caucus system broke down and Iowa's place in the nominating process became the story. Hours passed as the Iowa Democratic Party struggled to reconcile conflicting numbers from nearly 1,700 precincts. Partial numbers from selected caucus sites that were being covered by television networks painted a confusing and sometimes conflicting portrait of what was happening. In the absence of results in real time, it was anybody's guess who was winning. By the time the results are reported, perhaps this afternoon, they could be subject to challenge or questions from one or another of the campaigns. And the scene will have shifted to New Hampshire, whose primary will be held a week from today. The one conclusion from the numbers that were being collected by the media suggested that the eventual winner would receive a lower percentage of the vote than any previous winner since 1972, when the modern caucuses were born. But that could end up being the secondary story. Last night, it was all about Iowa and not the candidates. Iowans have prided themselves on their first-in-the-nation caucuses. Voters in this state have taken their role seriously, and over the years, a culture has developed here of citizens who turn out to see and evaluate the candidates firsthand to kick the tires. Democrats often have ended up settling on a candidate who would go on to win the party's nomination. But whatever the culture that exists in evaluating candidates, Iowa has also come under strong and recurring criticism for exercising outsized influence on the nominating process. This predominantly white state, where agriculture is the dominant industry, is far from representative of our nation. The absence of a larger minority population, especially for a Democratic Party that's become increasingly diverse in its makeup, rubs raw many non-Iowa Democrats. Beyond that, the caucus system itself is a target of criticism. Unlike primaries, in which voters can cast their ballots in secret at any time of the day when the polls are open, the caucus process is far more demanding. Participants must arrive by a fixed time in the evening and then be prepared to stick around for several hours as the process of alignment and realignment plays out. The caucuses disenfranchise some voters who, because of working hours or other issues, aren't able to be at their precinct sites at the appointed hour. This year, special provisions were made to make it easier for those people to attend satellite caucuses at different hours. Still, the caucuses are cumbersome and, to critics, unfair as a result. Defenders of the caucuses and of Iowa have long said that this is one of the few places where candidates need to meet voters face-to-face, where they must answer questions and listen, and perhaps learn a little bit about real life. But even in Iowa, there are questions about the prominence this state plays, given its demographics and small size. And now there's a bigger problem, and there is little doubt that it will bring more pressure than ever on Iowa's leaders to justify their presence on the calendar and the system they have built. Joe Biden's campaign sent a letter to the Iowa Democratic Party last night demanding answers and putting the party on notice about the eventual results. People in two other campaigns said state party leaders hung up on a conference call with representatives from all the campaigns when the leaders were pressed about when results will be released. Then they had another conference call around 2 a.m. this morning for the people that they had hung up on. 
The party officials told the campaigns they plan to release caucus results this afternoon. Two people on that call say that it turned testy. Bernie Sanders' senior advisor, Jeff Weaver, got into a tense exchange with Iowa Democratic Party chairman Troy Price. Mandy McClure, a spokeswoman for the Democratic Party, says they found inconsistencies in the reporting of results. In addition to the tech systems being used to tabulate, they're using photos of a paper to validate that all the results match and ensure that they have confidence before they put any numbers out. If Monday's problems were an isolated example, that would be one thing. But my colleague Dan Balls, who's been covering the Iowa caucuses for The Post since 1976, knows that this is the third time in as many caucus nights when Iowa has struggled to get it right. Eight years ago, Mitt Romney was declared the narrow victor over Rick Santorum on the night of the Republican caucuses, but the absence of full results on caucus night left the outcome unresolved. Then weeks later, Santorum was declared the real winner, but it was too late to give his campaign the boost he needed. Four years ago, Hillary Clinton and Sanders battled throughout a long night of counting. Clinton's campaign claimed victory without knowing for certain that she had won. In the end, her margin was less than half a percentage point, and the Sanders campaign, even now, does not believe that he actually lost. In the absence of results yesterday, cable television provided reports from individual caucus sites. What the television audience saw was not particularly reassuring, especially to those who have been skeptical of or simply don't understand how caucuses work. Iowans gather in their precincts, they break into groups to show support for an individual candidate, and then they're counted. When that count is completed, candidates who don't meet a threshold of 15% support are declared not viable. Supporters of non-viable candidates are then free to move to support another candidate. It sounds complicated, and it looked even more complicated on television. The absence of results created an odd ending to the evening, a series of speeches by the candidates all claiming in one way or another success or victory, especially Pete Buttigieg and Sanders. Every single candidate promised to take the fight on to New Hampshire. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, House managers and the president's defenders offered their closing arguments at the Senate impeachment trial where the senators have largely made up their mind. Democrats have nowhere near the two-thirds that they need to remove Trump from office, and the only remaining drama centers on a few possible swing votes from each party. In a floor speech, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, declined to reveal his decision, but he asked his colleagues to consider censuring Trump, a less severe rebuke than removal from office that few senators are willing to pursue. Doug Jones, the Democrat from Alabama who beat Roy Moore, said he remains undecided about how he'll vote on conviction. Lisa Murkowski, the Republican from Alaska, condemned the House's probe while also calling Trump's behavior shameful and wrong. But then she said she won't vote to convict him. Both the House managers and Trump's legal team crafted their remarks with a view toward the campaign trail, as voters will decide the future of his presidency. Trump lawyer Pat Cipollone emphasized that the Iowa caucuses were going on last night as he delivered his closing speech, and he said voters should get to decide the president's fate. Lead House manager Adam Schiff argued that Trump lacks the character to comport himself properly as president, describing his behavior as far more destructive than anything Richard Nixon or Bill Clinton ever did to trigger their impeachment proceedings. At least 10 Republicans have now echoed Lamar Alexander, the retiring Tennessee Republican's belief, that Trump's conduct was inappropriate. These comments have contributed to speculation that Congress could pursue censure, as Manchin proposed, but multiple senators in both parties flatly dismissed the idea yesterday after Manchin floated it on the floor. Asked to gauge the appetite for censure among Republicans, Mike Braun, a Republican from Indiana, replied immediately, quote, zero. The vast majority of Republicans, he explained, believe Trump did nothing wrong and 
has been subjected to a partisan investigation. Several Democrats also say they're uninterested in the idea, calling it a punishment well short of what Trump's conduct deserves. John Tester, a moderate Democrat from Montana, said what Trump did was impeachable and giving him a slap on the wrist won't do any good. Tonight, Trump will deliver his State of the Union, seizing the dais on the cusp of his Senate acquittal to make the case for a second term. White House officials are saying it's going to be sounding the starting gun for the race to re-election. The official theme of the speech will be the great American comeback. Trump plans to present a vision of, as one aide put it, relentless optimism and to summon lawmakers from both parties to work together on economic policies and other issues. But the traditionally presidential tone previewed by the White House has been belied by the president's own messages of discord and disunity and his vow to seek retaliation and retribution against Democrats and John Bolton, who he feel wronged him by searing his impeachment into history. It is an open question whether Trump will use tonight's address to complain as he has in other forums about the impeachment or to prematurely celebrate the trial's almost certain outcome. Some Republican lawmakers have urged the president not to do so, in part because the Senate's not expected to formally conclude its trial until Wednesday. In a conference call yesterday afternoon with reporters to preview the speech, a senior administration official said Trump's going to focus on five different issue areas and that the speech is going to be thematic. A blue-collar boom for which he will credit his trade negotiations with China, Mexico, and Canada, domestic policies that help working families, including paid family leave, health care, immigration, and national security. Trump also plans to use the speech to sound appeals to his conservative base. For example, he's going to propose a tax break to support scholarships for private and religious schools, a pet issue on the right. Number two, The second coronavirus death outside of mainland China has been confirmed in Hong Kong as the outbreak continues to spread. China's National Health Commission reported today that there are now 20,438 confirmed cases in the country, including 15 in Hong Kong and 8 in Macau. The self-governing island of Taiwan reported 10 cases. The World Health Organization says there are 146 confirmed cases in 23 countries outside of China. The United States recorded its 11th case of the coronavirus, with a couple from central California falling ill after the husband visited the province at the epicenter of the outbreak. States here are scrambling to carry out Trump's coronavirus travel order. In interviews with our health reporters, state officials complained that the order that came from Trump late Friday afternoon, with no advance notice, required them to rush planning. He banned non-U.S. citizens who recently visited China from entering the country and ordered the quarantine of Americans who visited Wuhan within the past 14 days. Immediate relatives of U.S. citizens, permanent residents, and flight crew members are exempted. But Hawaii Lieutenant Governor Josh Green says the way this was rolled out has made things harder. This isn't the kind of thing you want to do on the fly, he says, because it just creates chaos. And there was a lack of answers when they tried to follow up with the feds. Local jurisdictions are responsible for quarantining people once they leave airports under this Trump order. That's left these local authorities struggling to implement a system that they had less than three days to devise. Number three. With Britain's exit from the European Union now official at long last, the two partners yesterday began to squabble over their future relationship. Prime Minister Boris Johnson huffed that he would rather leave the economic bloc without a free trade deal than see Britain shackled to fusty European rules. At the very same hour, he delivered a speech before Parliament on the question. EU chief negotiator Michael Barnier outlined the bloc's demands, declaring that Europe will agree to a free trade deal with Britain only if they submit to the continent's regulations. And so began an 11-month transition period, when all of this may or may not be sorted out. 
In this messy and drawn-out split, after 47 years together, the divvying up of the stuff turns out to be not so easy. Britain under Johnson is now all about cutting loose and going global and making side deals with the Americans and the Australians, while Europe is all about the need to preserve a level playing field if Britain wants to be a friend with benefits, meaning, in their parlance, access to its single market of 450 million consumers. In broad strokes, in language oratund, and marked by the clever turns of phrase that Johnson perfected as an Oxford-educated Fleet Street columnist, the Prime Minister laid out his vision for a post-Brexit Britain that will be a world champion for free trade. Johnson mixed his metaphors, but his message was clear. He said Britain is a ship in the slipway, ready to set sail. Then he called it a rocket on the launch pad, ready to blast off. And then, finally, he said it's a butterfly, leaving its chrysalis. Johnson said the kingdom is reemerging after decades of hibernation to be the lead campaigner for global free trade. And frankly, he said it's not a moment too soon because the argument for open markets is no longer being made by the Americans. The prime minister took a swipe at Trump, his friend, warning during his speech that trade wars and tariff barriers are in vogue from Brussels to Beijing and Washington. And he says that's a very bad thing for the world. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 4th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.